Welcome everyone to the Rise Science Podcast, the show about all things sleep science and performance. I'm Jeff Kahn, co-founder and CEO at Rise Science. If you've listened to this show before, or you know anything about me, you know that I'm on a mission to help people improve their lives through healthy sleep. For more information about how Rise can help you or your company, or if you just want to download our app, visit our website at risescience.com. On today's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Mark Rosekind. Mark has a storied history with sleep. After finishing his PhD in psychophysiology in the late 80s, he went on to direct Stanford Sleep Center. In 1990, he was named director of NASA's Fatigue Countermeasures Program, and it was there that his studies focused on airline pilots and how they were affected by lack of sleep and what to do about it. In 1998, Mark founded Alertness Solutions, a consulting firm advising Fortune 500 clients in transportation, energy, healthcare, and government on fatigue management. In 2010, he became a member of the National Transportation Safety Board, where in 2014, President Obama appointed him to run the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Currently, Mark is Chief Safety Innovation Officer at the autonomous vehicle startup Zooks that was just acquired by Amazon for $1.2 billion. I'm very, very excited to talk with Mark today, not only because he's been an early advisor to Rise on Sleep Science, but also because he's had an outsized impact in the field of sleep and human performance and is someone that I'm really proud to call a friend uh, and a coach. Mark, welcome to the show. It's really so awesome to be with you. And every opportunity to talk about sleep. Thanks. <laughs> well, I can give you that opportunity. It's something, obviously, that uh, I think when we first met, just we were both so excited about because uh, it's not every day that you get to talk with someone that just is so passionate about about the area. So uh, I think one of the things that for most of the listeners, they're going to be really curious about, and as I thought about what I wanted to talk about today and what I thought might be interesting for you to share, is that the leaders that I talk on the phone with every day, the users that are finding Rise on their own... This is like a, such a novel concept for them that they should be thinking about sleep as a performance enhancement lever. And it's even you know more bizarre in an enterprise setting where you know you're a business leader thinking about how to improve you know your your business unit performance, and sleep should even be a priority. Like that's such a new novel concept. Uh, the science I think has a very different perspective on this, but I, I want to actually share a, a quote with you that you shared with me. And then I, I really want to dig into, uh, you know, this idea of sleep as performance enhancement and sort of how you came, came into this. Um, but this quote that you shared with me, and this is now a couple years ago, you said, you know, people don't care about their sleep. And I was like very taken aback at that <laughs> point. You said they care about how their sleep makes them feel and how they perform during the day. And that really changed my perspective on this whole field. Um, I'd love to just learn a little more about like how you came into that. What was it that inspired that sort of viewpoint? Um, and, and why do you think it's still so novel today in 2020 that, uh, you know, people are uh, thinking about their, their, their sleep uh, not as a performance enhancement? What's been getting in the way? So what's interesting about that quote is it's a 360 degree journey, basically. So I was fortunate to start my career taking sleep and dreams from Dr. William DeMent. And, and Dr. DeMent was the guy who you know, helped discover REM sleep, who coined the term REM sleep, started the first sleep clinic, is considered the father of modern sleep medicine. He just passed away you know, um, just a little while ago, 91. Uh, but I, I started as an undergraduate in his class called Sleep and Dreams. And what's interesting is a big part of his passion was about 
we got to pay attention to sleep as much as everybody's focused on being awake. And so what was interesting is all of this focus on let's, you know, pull back the covers of the night and see what's going on with sleep. And what's interesting, though, is what Dr. Demend and I learned this over many years working with him is while you want to learn about all that, what people really care about is how does that feed your waking life? And so how does your sleep help you be healthy or safe or at your peak performance or your mood? And so what was kind of interesting is Bill tried to flip it on its head. Don't focus on wake. You should focus on sleep and actually help me come 360 to kind of like, well, the reality is people are going to care about their sleep because it's going to affect their waking life. And, and that's what people really care about. You know, I, I, I fall asleep when I drive. I can't stay in a conversation without falling asleep. Or, you know, I think I could be performing better at this level, but I just can't quite get there. Um, and the one thing that almost everybody ignores, not everyone, but almost, is sleep. And how, uh, for everything else you want to talk about, sleep is probably so foundational to what we do during our waking lives. It's amazing how people aren't realizing how it will differentiate making you a better everything. So one question is, why is it taking so long? And I honestly, I get this question a lot. Why is it? I, I really struggle to answer that question of like, why is it that people haven't really thought about this? I think it's gotten a lot more, uh, even since we've known each other, I think it's even gotten more attention than it ever has historically. Do you have a sense of what's going on with the field of, of why people just aren't in tuned and maybe what's starting to change now? You know, what's interesting about that is I've always felt education is foundational. It's like when people learn about what the opportunity represents, that's kind of when literally the light bulbs go off and it's like, oh, I, I could use this to my advantage, right? To be safer, to perform at a higher level, etc. cetera. Um, what's interesting, though, about your comment is there are cycles to this. What you just said, I've heard probably at least three or four times in my career, right? Where I think it's getting better. And so do a search sometime on where, you know, this CEO comes out and says, man, the biggest lecture I have is getting eight hours sleep. Or, you know, it's some like, and it's like, wait, that was 10 years ago. You know, and then you look at about, I don't know, seven to 10 years before that. It's like, it seems to go through cycles where the education goes up. People have some appreciation, maybe of sleep disorders or how it might help improve performance to some extent. Um, and then it kind of just stabilizes. And then there's another spike again. And, and it'd be interesting if it was related to some new finding, but not usually. I find it's more education. You know, there's a new popular book that comes out and everybody's talking about it. So now everybody's talking REM sleep and sleep apnea and taking naps. So it's kind of interesting. I think um, your whole career, you will be battling this um, because so much of it is two things. As a species, we just generally are ignorant about sleep. And the second thing is we all think it's someone else, not us. There's just this societal thing where, you know, it's like it's the wimps and everyone else who needs that sleep stuff. I'm impervious to it. You know, I can go without it or whatever. And once they learn and, and last point about this, the really high performing people I've interacted with, astronauts, Olympic athletes, special operations forces, etc. They're looking for any edge they can get. They've already done all the diet, all the skills training, all this other stuff. And the one thing that's generally been ignored is the sleep. And when they learn what a difference that can make, it's kind of like anything you got, doc, you know, teach me whatever you can. <laughs> you know, the thing that's sort of shocking to me is, you know, one of the things that I'll often tell people that are just thinking about sleep for the first time as a way to improve performance is that this isn't a trend. You know, we've known about sleep for a long time 
And, you know, I don't, I even go back before DeMent where, you know, his lab at University of Chicago that started back in 1925, like, you know, that was before penicillin was even ever thought of that we've been studying human sleep. So, you know, the way that I'll sometimes explain it is, you know, sleep is like this performance enhancing drug that pretty much affects every aspect of your functioning. And we've known about this drug longer than we've known about the first antibiotic ever developed. And so the question uh, that, that sort of I think about a lot is, is there more science to be done in your mind as you think about where the field is going and where it's going in, you know, forward? Or do you think that, you know, the, the data to date, there's enough consensus that sleep is, you know, if you look at all the levers that you can move, you know, nutrition, mindfulness, uh, physical exercise, you know, skills training, you know, where does sleep fit in that, in that hierarchy of levers that you have control over? Um, you know, that's something that I think is just interesting for me. Uh, and obviously for the people that we talk about is you've got millions of things you could do. Why should sleep be the priority? So first let's start with what you were talking about, a drug, right? A drug enhancing, right? For performance. And what's interesting about sleep is everyone's got it. It's natural. You're not paying for it. Right. I mean, it's like if, I mean, you know, when you just think about, that everyone's born with this, it kind of comes natural to us, etc. It's like the natural performance enhancer. Why isn't everybody taking advantage, right? And that's why to your question, well, to your question, first, I would say it goes at the top. And so I've always thought sleep is foundational to anything else you want to do. And kind of like we were talking about before, good sleep means better wakefulness. So I don't care if it's a specific performance, decision-making, uh, physical performance, you know, your cognitive aspects, mood, etc., all those things benefit from a good night's sleep. So I put it up at the top. So, you know, better nutrition, we already know. You don't sleep well, that's going to affect your, you know, ability to become obese and, and manage fat and do all this other stuff. Uh, it's going to affect your mood and how you interact socially with people. You want to sell stuff, for example? Man, if you're not really good interacting with people, that's going to, you're going to pay a price for that. And so I always think, well, I put it at the top of your list. I think of it as sleep is foundational. You know, you want to do all those other performance enhancers, you better start with good sleep because whether it's learning a new skill or performing, you know, in an interactive way with other people socially or just your own health, etc., sleep is going to be fundamental. It's foundational to making sure you're in the best position for all those things. You know, when you think about the other levers, which I guess is the second question, you know, okay, how does sleep stack up to, I, I, you know, thinking about mindfulness, I've got an exercise routine. Um, and it's all about trade-offs. And so when I'm thinking about that, what you're saying is, uh, what I'm hearing from you is, hey, look, you know, you should focus on sleep first because it affects all the other areas. Um, when it comes to sleep, what is it about it that seems to affect, I mean, very few things affect every single aspect of your function, you know, cognitive, emotional, physical. Do you have any sense of, or, or theories about why that is and what's going on? I mean, is it just so fundamental to how we operate? What, what are your thoughts there? So uh, it's what you just said. I think it's so fundamental. And, you know, for decades, people have asked, why do we sleep? And we still haven't really answered that, except I point out what we have done is point to better data about REM sleep helps with memory consolidation, right? Deep sleep helps with physical restoration. We have all kinds of new data on immune function, etc. And the reason I bring that up is because it's kind of like asking the question, why are we awake? And, you know, we're, we're awake way beyond just, you know, getting food, gathering food and procreating. You know, wakefulness is way bigger than those things. And so to say, like, why do we sleep and think there's going to be one reason is just naive. And so that's why, to your point, I think it's fundamental to our existence. 
Um, and again, I was like food, water, air. You know, without those, you die, you don't survive. Sleep is on that list. You know, that's how fundamental it is. And that's why I say it's, it's literally foundational to anything else you want to do. And I don't care what you want to put on that list. Learning new skills, uh, mindfulness techniques, you know, um, your mood, again, your social interaction, your high level decision making. If your sleep in any way has uh, declined to the point where it's going to affect your waking performance, you're not going to see a little bit of decline. You're going to see possibly huge uh, degradation, right? And so that's the other thing I point out is people think, well, I can lose sleep and it maybe throws me off my game one or two percent. Most data show, um, you know, communication goes down by 30 percent. Reaction time can be down 50 to 75 percent, right? Decision making can go down 50 percent. And it's, it's like not that you don't make decisions, but half of them are bad, right? Yeah. And so, again, it's like you're still performing, but it's at a, such a lowered level, um, that I think, you know, people really need to be realized if, if you don't have this fundamental, then everything else you're trying to do is degraded, possibly even impaired. So what, what I think to me is so shocking about that, and I think it's a, a unbelievably huge claim, which is uh, that the single most important thing you can do if you care about your wake time functioning, and whether that's from a quality of life standpoint, whether it's from a performance or productivity standpoint because you're competitive, you're saying the single most important thing you can do is get it, basically get enough sleep and uh, make sure that you're sleeping well. Like that's really the claim and that there's nothing that is more impactful, no other lever that human beings have that you found, whether it's at NASA or at Stanford or at Alertness Solutions, you know, and later that's going to have a bigger impact than what you do with your sleep. There's absolutely no question. And two things, again, food, water, air, without those you die. And most of us won't hold our breath or stop drinking, right, long enough to actually die. And most of us will sleep deprive ourselves to death, but you can, right? Um, but the point is, that's not what you're after. What you're after is, man, you got to have good hydration and you got to have a good diet and you got to breathe, right? <laughs> you know, it's like these are so fundamental to being able to exist. And that's why to your question earlier, kind of about the science, what's fascinating for me is over the last few decades, there's more science that shows better and better outcomes of good sleep helping with performance or sleep deprivation creating an impaired level of performance. But that's really what's interesting. It's not like we have some big, huge new finding. Oh, guess what sleep does? Well, what we've learned is sleep degrades performance and now we've got it in higher cognitive kinds of decision-making, certain memory kinds of things. More studies have just built the case stronger and stronger that if you ignore this, it's kind of like ignoring that you need to breathe, eat, and drink water. Right. I mean, it's it's staggering to me. And this is when people ask me, like, you know, is this a trend? <laughs> and one of the things I tell them is, you know, we've been studying this since the mid-20s. Like, there's so much science on this. There's more than what we know about physical exercise and what we know about nutritional science. Right. This is like this foundational science that's been done. And we don't have to recreate that. Um, I think the question, obviously, we get excited about is, well, how do you help people change that over the long term? Um, and what do you need to do to to affect it? So I guess this is where I, I'm very curious about about your background. And so for everyone listening, I think it would just be fascinating to, to see, you know, what it seems like that initial inspiration was Dement's Sleep and Dreams class. Um, you then went on to get, get a PhD in, in psychophysiology uh, and then went on after that to be in, in sleep research. Take us through just that journey of like how you got started in sleep, how that evolved, 
And then ultimately sort of the transition to, to you know, really out of sleep at NHTSA um, and sort of now on the safety side, what's been that career pathway and, you know, starting in sleep science, uh, getting out of it, but now also sort of still being very close to it. So I'm, I'm actually on my sixth career, but we'll keep this short focused on sleep. <laughs> and, and I think what's interesting about that is, you know, I, I talk about starting at Stanford because that was literally not just take the class. But there is a way to literally learn how to do sleep research, put the electrodes on and read the sleep brainwave activity. Um, and so I became a TA for that class over the next few years. Um, when I graduated, instead of going to medical school, I thought, no, nah, I want to be a professor and do research in this area. And so I stayed and worked with Dr. Dement. And it was it was like doing a postdoc before going to graduate school. Um, and so to your point, though, the first part of my career was all the academic stuff. And, and after graduate school at Yale, you know, where they didn't have a sleep lab, brought a bed into the psychophysiology lab, we have a sleep lab now, you know? So my dissertation was on sleep. Uh, I did my postdoc with Mary Karskad, who's a very famous sleep researcher who invented the multiple sleep latency test, the gold standard for how you measure sleepiness, kind of got me back into it, very academic, back at Stanford running the lab, very academic. But then we started a project, I was running a lab there, and our, you know, part of our job was getting new projects. And so NASA Ames, which is right in town, you know, Stanford and Palo Alto, NASA Ames in Mountain View, very close. Um, and they were doing a project actually looking at that time of giving pilots naps in the cockpit. And they wanted to record brain activity, EEG and eye movements and stuff, standard sleep lab stuff. How do you do that in the cockpit of an airplane? And so, you know, they got this collaboration with us at Stanford. We helped them figure out there was all this noise in the cockpit, electric noise. You know, and so it was hard to get these uh, ambulatory brainwave recorders to actually, you know, pick up. It was just so fun to troubleshoot it and figure it out, right? Um, so I worked with them, and that was a great study in its own right. But to your point, I think that's when I started making this transition. It's like going from the academic with humans, but the NASA work really showed me how all of this sleep science really has a place to improve our waking lives. And I was especially attracted to operational settings. So that means, you know, NASA, those are pilots and astronauts, for example. And what happened was the folks I was working with made an offer and I ended up going to NASA. The guy who had been running the program actually left about six months after I was there. And before I knew it, it's like I'm running this thing that uh, was not that far out of my postdoc. <laughs> um, but what an incredible 90 to 97 directing fatigue countermeasures program. And our job was how do you keep pilots and astronauts awake on the job, which is a metaphor for all of us, right? No matter what you do, and you don't want to be awake, you want to be alert and at your peak performance and safe and right, all that kind of stuff. That was the transition. And I think this is a story I don't often tell, but I got to do this one. Um, one of the things I learned at NASA, you know, the scientist, right, is I had friends would call and say, okay, I launch tomorrow, should I do A or B? And Again, a scientist would say, well, what a great question. You know, give me about two years to do the study. The paper will come out in three or four, you know, or I can let you know the data in about a year and a half. And they say, no, I'm launching. We're talking like on the shuttle tomorrow. Should I do A or B? And it made me realize there's all this sleep science, even if you didn't have the exact answer for that particular case, right? Is there was all this sleep science that we had that you could apply to the situation that if you gave them any information, their safety, performance, et cetera, would go from here to here. Why would you not give them that? And right. so, you know, when I moved to NASA, it was a chance to basically say, how do we apply the sleep science to enhance lives, 
safety, performance, health, mood, etc. And of course, most of these were in, you know, high performance environments where there was life and death kind of stuff. Because um, it wasn't just commercial pilots or military pilots, special operations kinds of groups, astronaut corps, etc. And they were just hungry for it. And, and I'll just little one wrapped in because I don't get to talk about this much. After I left uh, and was at Alert to Solutions, I used to participate at Bombardier. I used to have a safety stand down for pilots, corporate pilots, and anyone else who was interested. And I used to have a two-hour slot to talk about fatigue and fatigue countermeasures. So I was very fortunate because um, the friendship lasted over a decade. Um, I got to know Captain Gene Cernan, the Apollo 17 commander. Wow. The last man who walked on the moon. So this is a guy who's like done it all, you know, air, aircraft carrier pilot, you know, other flights, last man who walked on the moon. The first time I met him, and there's 500 people in this audience, and Gene is sitting literally in the front row, you know, and at the end, of, uh, there's two hours. So it's the end of the first hour. We're about to take a break and his hand goes up and the first hour is about sleep. The second hour is strategies, countermeasures, and he, his hand goes up because Mark, you know, this first hour, now I understand when I was on the moon, why this happened, why that was a problem, how come this was going on? And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, the next hour should be Gene telling moon stories about sleep. Right, exactly. But the point I always make is, you know what? It doesn't matter who you are, what you've accomplished, how well trained you are, how smart you are. This is like fundamental. And it takes somebody like, you know, Captain Cernan, who's literally been on the moon, right? the last guy to walk on the moon to kind of say, yeah. why didn't we know this then, right? It's kind of like what we should all be getting this as fundamental information to make our jobs better. The fact that, you know, you have someone who's, you know, on the moon that didn't hear this until they were, you know, much later in their career is just shocking. And, um, you know, my hope is that some of the work that we get to do at Rise obviously is feeding off of all of the work that you've done, your colleagues have done. And, you know, we can play some small part in this story where, you know, at some point in the future, we almost just laugh at the fact that people weren't taking sleep seriously, that it wasn't a priority, that businesses weren't talking about it, that they weren't creating sleep safe environments for their employees, that, you know, when you're a parent and with your kids, you're not talking about it. This is just fundamental. Um, and my hope is that, that that sort of world of healthy sleep comes true, you know, in the next 10, 20 years, because it's uh, based on our earlier conversation, if we make that happen, the world will be much better in almost every way. So, Jeff, that's why we're talking, because, you know, it's like what you're trying to do is move that from, you know, that slow curve to that line. Right. And so that's why we're talking. Anytime I can support, you know, folks like you that are on the positive side of trying to not just get people educated, because the second half of this one is get the information. The second half, what are the tools? Yeah. Because people finally say, OK, I get it. This is really important. But the second I always say you got to have your other hand out, which is so what do I do about it? You got to give them the tools so they know how to get good sleep, how to handle operational, you know, everyday stresses, etc. It's like you got to give them the tools. So that's why we're talking, because, you know, your efforts to get us on that other side are going to be critical. And listen, I hope it's 10, 20 years, but that's what I'm telling you. I mean, Dr. Dement was at it. He just died at 91. And, and you know, I think he's got disciples like me. We try and get others like you passionate and energized as well. Um, but it's been a long haul and we're clearly not there yet. No, I mean, we're not there yet. And um, but to see that work, I mean, to, uh, we're, we're, we're hopefully we're you know moving in the right trajectory. And and, you know, for us, the exciting thing is, yeah, can we uh, stay in tune with what the science is saying and 
be, uh, I, I think the line that we always use internally, whether we're building product or we're writing a new blog post or we're putting together a sales deck, whatever it is, you know, could this stand up in front of a room of sleep scientists if it's on the sleep side, if it's on the behavioral change side? Could this stand up in front of a room of behavioral scientists? And you know, we're not going to be perfect, but we want it to be pretty rigorous. And I actually remember uh, we were working with the Miami Dolphins a couple years ago, and they wanted to test the impact of our program. And I reached out to you and I said, Mark, can you introduce me to Dave Dingus, who might help me figure out how to do the you know, PVT study with them? And you know, fascinating results, obviously. And, and um, I, we've just been such great... Uh, I, I guess the sleep science community has just been so great to us and so giving and anything we can do to give back, I, we, we, we want to, because it's, we've been the recipients of, you know, we really haven't had to do any new research. All we've had to do is just apply what's already no, been known, um, which, which is nice. Which so is to your earlier thank point. Thank you for that work. And, and, you know, my point, but that's, that's to your point, which is while there's more science that continues to emerge, you have enough now to apply Right to people's right. lives and make a difference now. To- no, totally. Um, and you know, I guess the the interesting question on the tool side, and maybe this is the transition from uh, you know, as you've transitioned now on the safety and policy side, being in Washington, um, where where do you see the tool side going? I mean, where are things? Um, do you feel like there are maybe some big technological enablers that are going to change that that you saw? you know, back when you were working in the field that maybe just weren't there yet? And what, what do you see as, you know, that new wave uh, and where things are going? So I, I, there are kind of three areas. Um, one is education, which we've already talked about. I mean, Dr. Dement used to talk about this all the time, and I just sort of, you know, repeat what he says, which is sleep education needs to be literally incorporated into every level of our education system. You know, I mean, he taught a, a college course, and there are few around the country, but it's like, man, you should be doing this in elementary school. You know, it's like start there and every year you're learning more. I mean, it's like, you know, food, water, air, right? I mean, it's like so basic. You, you need to start there. I think, you know, the, the other two big ones are technology. And I think we've seen so much advance there with wearables and phones and all the rest of it um, that there's new opportunities. And I think there are limitations right now to how valid some of the wearables are and some of the other part, et cetera. But just the fact people are talking about it, you know, it used to be how much, how many steps did you get? Now it's like, how was your sleep? You know, it's like just to get people talking about it. So I think the technology opens up all kinds of new opportunities to literally be part of people's lives because that's where the change is made. That's where things are going to, you know, make a difference. So I think technology is there. The third area I like to point out actually is policy because you bring it up and having spent time in Washington now at at pretty interesting levels, um, there are ways you know, it's interesting how, I mean, it's the stuff that's so obscure unless you're in the industries, but there are literally laws about hours of service. How long can pilots fly? How much rest should they get? Long haul truckers, how long can they drive? And if you understand the science, you look at what some of those policies and the regulations are, and you're just kind of like, what are they thinking here? You know? Um, and so I think that's another huge area where um, you can educate people, it's really critical, you can give certain technology, but also at some point you need some policy structures that are gonna give people guidance on what's okay generally to do. Um, And so I think that's another arena that's mostly untapped right now. Yeah, no, I mean, an area where you had, you know, pretty unique experience uh, the past couple years. Yeah, and, you know, so at the NTSB, you're investigating horrific things that happened, you know, people died, et cetera. Before I left, um, 
Dr. Marcus and I, <laughs> not the guy who was there in the recommendations, Jeff Marcus and I did a really interesting study just looking how often did fatigue show up in an accident invest- in a crash investigation. And so we're looking at findings and probable cause and uh, contributing factors. It's like any place. And we looked over 12 years across all the modes. 20% of all investigations had fatigue, some fatigue element in them. Think about that. You know, the NTSB only looks at big stuff and 20% have some fatigue element in those investigations. So one out of five, and I think that's, you know, probably a good estimation, could be even higher. And so, you know, I, again, I think this is the stuff where, um, you know, it's been around. If we don't pay attention to it, there's a huge price. And, and I think, again, people think about that with their own driving, et cetera. But even as a society, that's what I'm talking about, the NTSB investigations. These are things that have had, you know, many lives have been lost and changed um, in, in truck crashes as well as airplanes, et cetera, where fatigue played a role. And we shouldn't be allowing that to happen, you know. And, and just to go a little further at NHTSA, um, everyone, you know, the hottest thing when I was there behaviorally was impairment. Drunk, drug, distracted, especially distracted. And what I pointed out is, you know, there's one D that's off. And I give my son and his wife credit. They came up with four Ds, not three. There's four, right? So it's drugged, right? Drunk, distracted, drowsy. You know, there's four of them. Yeah, and I point out not everybody's drinking. Not everybody's on their phone. But they, everybody's got to be awake and you hope alert when they're driving their car. You know, so it's like even there, you know, it's like fundamental. You want to do road safety, well, impairment's a huge part of too many crashes, etc. And fundamental to that is people got to be awake if they're going to actually, you know, eyes on the road, head in the game. And I think, you know, one of the lines that Demet says is a lot of people walk around and they're one of the things I've tried to look at in the research is why is it that you can walk around uh, with a fair amount of sleep deprivation and not feel subjectively that sleepy? Yet your objective performance can continue to decline. And there's one paper that I, I really love going back to on this topic, but it really shows that basically after about three days of getting a certain amount of sleep, that you basically level off in terms of your subjective rating of sleepiness. And so I don't know exactly why, and the paper I know talks a little bit about that, but I, that to me is just really fascinating that in some level, evolutionarily, we're almost wired to, uh, I, I, and this is you know way out of my realm here, but my hypothesis is that you know, evolutionarily, if you got less sleep than you needed at, at some point, that was almost like a fight or flight mechanism. And that, uh, you know, if you are going into fight or flight, um, not only are you going to activate a bunch of, you know, short-term stressors, but your brain is almost tricking you to, to, to feel more alert than you might otherwise would be uh, to, to get through psychologically whatever situation. But it's just so strange that, you know, you can go around getting five hours of sleep for a while and not really feel it. And, you know, Demence line is drowsiness is red alert. <laughs> yeah. Most people feel like drowsiness is like, oh, maybe I need a little more sleep. I'm a little drowsy at, at you know, in early afternoon, you know, today. So I'm going um, to extend that just a little bit in that one of the things I always like to highlight is that part of what you're describing is also a disconnect that we have between our subjective feelings or ratings of alertness and our actual physiological level. So there's a great, this guy, uh, Mitsuo Sasaki, did a great NASA, part of a NASA study, where he's got this uh, wonderful graph I love to show, where people, uh, they were airline pilots in a study, they'd rate themselves on a scale being at a one, but when you measured physiologically how sleepy they were, they were literally falling asleep in about five minutes, which is the twilight zone, that's pathological level sleep. So they'd rate themselves very high, 
but physiologically, they're nodding off pretty much in a pathological arena. So there's a disconnect between our subjective estimate, but that's kind of what you're saying is like, if you're at a deficit, it gives you that sort of that fight or flight, basically. It's like, you're at a deficit, but you got to perform. So I, I think basically the, the, that disconnect allows you to continue, but there's a huge deficit in your performance, et cetera, that puts you at risk. And I, I got to tell you, for all the data, there's this one video that Dr. Demet had. It was a study where they sleep deprived people and then they had them sit at a table with a little switch. You know, if you think you're going to fall asleep in the next 10, 15 seconds, hit the switch. Okay. If you think you're going to fall asleep in like 10, 15 seconds, just hit that switch. And they were sleep deprived and the camera was right in their face. And here were these people, you know, with their fingers on the switch and they're going, you know, and there's experiments saying, if you think you're going to fall asleep, hit this. No, I'm okay. You know, and they're not hitting the switch. So there's this major disconnect between subjectively how we think we're okay and physiologically where you're literally ready to fall asleep in a few minutes, right? And, and one of the things, as far as a tool goes, is when someone says, I'm good to go, and you know you've just been on three all-night flights with them and then delayed whatever, and they're like, I'm good to go, you can't believe them. And it's not that they're lying to you, but we're just really bad raiders of how alert we are, especially when you're already sleep deprived and tired. And so is that maybe one of the reasons why, at least on the consumers, you know, when you're hungry, uh, you, you tend to, you know, know that and eat when you're thirsty, same thing. Yep. But when you're sleep deprived, what we're saying, uh, the, the data shows really convincingly is you're just fully unaware. And it's really a shame because I think if maybe that was fixed and we immediately felt it as soon as we had a little bit of physiological deprivation that was affecting our performance, then maybe we'd expect a change. But I think that's one of the things that is a really big problem that somehow, for some reason, we just, there, there's this huge disconnect. So that's why, and you were kind of talking about, you were kind of talking about this, but that's why I always felt like you need subjective as well as objective kinds of measures. And so what I love to do in some studies that, and some evaluations that we did was literally have people rate how they were doing, but then take things like a performance test, like a react, simple reaction time test, and show them the discrepancy. So, I mean, we did this one study with um, Air New Zealand, um, but it was with travelers. You know, it wasn't with their pilot, it was with alertness solutions with travelers. Yeah, well, we took people on a productivity scale who said they were like in the top 10%, they were like way up there, I'm doing great, you know, uh, subjectively. And yet when we measured their reaction time test, they were degraded by 20%. So the people who thought they were doing wow. their best at the top were actually 20% degraded. And so again, that disconnect. So the tool though there is one, the education. There's a disconnect between how you feel and how you're really doing sleepiness and performance wise. But the second part that's really critical is, so what are the cues you should look for or use to let you know when you're in that dangerous situation? Exactly. Right? And that's again where education, which is if I haven't got the sleep I need or it's the wrong time of day because of circadian factors, um, or, you know what, I forgot where I parked my car or, you know, I thought my keys were here. So a memory lapse or whatever. It's like, don't discount that. Those are the cues that tell you there's this stick, uh, some kind of disconnect that actually is affecting your performance in ways you're probably not aware. Huh. I think that that's a really interesting point and something that when we work with a lot of different, you know, across individuals, pro athletes, you know, top level business people, one of the things that's most surprising, you know, we typically start with a sleep science education workshop is one, just how far ranging the impacts are. This isn't just, you know, how you feel when you wake up, 
the, but the second thing is that you'll you'll we'll find a lot of people that um, they feel like they've got no energy. They're going to doctors. They're going to therapists. They're really anxious. They're stressed out. They're you know maybe underperforming. They're irritable when they get home, and they don't know what's wrong with them. And they've tried all these different approaches. Maybe they've tried a wearable, or they've tried going to therapy. You know, the the list goes on and on of things you could try to do. And then finally, we say, look, well, you know, how much sleep debt do you have? Oh, wow, I've got 15 hours of sleep debt. Oh, well, let me see if I can work that down. And they cut it their sleep deprivation in half. All of a sudden, they're like, I, I just feel way better. And it's almost this magical moment that hits them of like, oh, that when I don't get enough sleep and I've truly changed my sleep deprivation, all these other parts of my life change. And I think it's just that aha moment for people. I, if we could get more people to that moment, I think they would start start to kind of realize that. And you start to pick up, oh, yeah, I was irritable at home today. Or you, like you said, you lost your keys and, and that becomes a signal. Um, it's not just how – what you're saying is even if you feel amazing at the top of your game, good chance there, – there is no way that you can perform at the top of your game if you have sleep deprivation. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And what you're getting to is um, – you know, people, all those different sort of difficulties you were describing that people could have. Um, and it's not like if you sleep, they all go away. But sleep is foundational. All those things will improve. Or your opportunity to improve your mood or your health or these other things will improve with the sleep. And a lot of folks, especially in the patient arena, like with sleep apnea, is when they get treatment, it's like a fog lifts. And what you're describing is even with, you know, significant sleep deprivation, especially that sleep debt, because for most people, it's not about too little sleep one night. It's about that big cumulative sleep debt that they've built. Um, what's interesting is when you're in the fog, you don't know it. I mean, that's what we're talking about, about this discrepancy. It's like if you're in the fog, you don't know and you don't know it and realize it until you're out of it. So until you have more sleep and you're more alert again, you don't even realize that until you can look back and say, whoa, that was really bad. Yeah. And that's, that's one of, I think the challenges for us is it's both, you know, education, how do we get you to realize there's a problem here? And, uh, but then, you know, changing it into, into the tool side of helping people realize that. But I think that unlock of your, you know, you don't realize you're not supposed to realize it. The science shows you will not likely realize how sleep deprived you are. Um, but when you measure it objectively and start to make changes, you'll feel it immediately Mm -hmm. and it'll be, you know, no brainer. Um, and it was actually one of the things we saw with pro athletes that I'm sure you've seen is when we're working with them, they'd say, all right, Jeff, you know, I buy some of the data and I buy that this might be useful. Then they just, they're like, what's in it for me to lose? I'll try getting a little more sleep for a couple more nights. They do that. They work their sleep deprivation down, you know, over four or five nights. And then they're like, oh, whoa, I'm practicing a lot better. <laughs> this is crazy. Okay. And that's, that's that moment when, when it hits them. They're like, oh, I didn't realize it was that simple. I'm just not getting enough sleep. Um, and now it is hard to solve, but it's really the problem is as simple as that. And I think um, it tends to get overcomplicated. And uh, one of the things that it is frustrating is, you know, there, this wearable is going to solve it for you or a new right. mattress or a new pillow right. or, you know, this new technique or this supplement. And I think we both know that that sort of eh, doesn't really hold any water. Right. Well, and that's why what you were just highlighting is the need, uh, you know, for individuals, what you have to do is have them identify the performance measures that matter to them, you know, and, and what you want to do is have them, even if they're just, you know, doing subjective self-assessments of how they're doing, you know, let's stay with football for a moment, you know, speed off the line or, you know, injury issues or just, you know, what their conditioning is like or how quickly they become winded because of, right? Um, or just driving or some other kinds of, thing. I can't, you know, stay awake while I'm watching a movie, etc. It's like, put me in a dark room, I can't, 
So have them identify, you know, a range of performance things that matter and have them keep track of that. Things that are objective, right? Your speed, you know, can you drive or not? You know, did you forget your key, et cetera? And then the experiment is great. Let's take a week, you know, and get you more sleep and get, you know, that sleep debt down to zero if you can, and then be measuring them at the end of that week, right? And, and I'm telling you, it's like anybody who's honest about doing those ratings, there has to be a difference. And if there's not, there's some other pathology or illness going on that you got to get figured out, right? Because that's like such a straightforward individual test that everybody could do, right? What matters to you? Let me get more measured again. It's got to get better. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's for free. If you're listening to this, you can literally, you know, pick a couple performance measures, keep track of it in your, you know, phone notes app or on paper. What are the measures that you care about? And then get as much sleep as you can for, you know, four or five nights and then and then continue to rate as you go along and you'll see the change, you know. So that's that's the the amazing thing. So I have to mention two more things, uh, but with our limited time we have together. One is uh, one of the papers that you did around sleep and workplace productivity. And uh, one of the things that's so fascinating is uh, a lot of people, you know, how do you quantify that? How do you quantify productivity? And really, is it sleep? There's so many other things we're doing. So what went into that work? And what do you think the the implications were um, for, you know, business today? So I think what you're highlighting is sort of an evolution of my work and sort of focus on trying to quantify the outcomes a little bit better. Um, and I, I think just like we were talking about, it's really important to kind of personalize these measures, whether it's for an organization or an individual. And, you know, just to be honest about that, there's a, a, there was a great researcher at Tufts who had already been doing productivity work. And she was looking at it mostly related to health outcomes. And I was amazed that nobody had taken this standardized, um, you know, survey that she had and applied it to sleep. And so that's why what we did was actually take her, you know, survey questionnaire that she had that had already been validated and used in all these other health measures and applied it to sleep and divided them all up. And I think what was most interesting about that is even people that had, quote, good sleep still had a productivity cost. And then when you went actually to people that were sleep deprived to some extent, it just got worse and worse and worse. And so, again, I think that's an example of taking a, a validated measure that already existed. And let's just document. Um, and in my case, you know, I, I think about a lot of these. It's like if it didn't come out that way, we were doing something wrong. And, and not that you, you know, not that you sort of know what your, it's just, you know what your hypothesis is based on decades of research, right? Right. And right. so it's just nobody's documented before the productivity pieces you're talking about with a standardized measure from some other arena, you know, and that's kind of what we did. And I think that's important for the kind of work you're doing as well, is that people need to know it's not just how you feel or I feel. There's organizational metrics that have been used now that show if you're not paying attention to sleep, you're paying for it, you know? And if you pay for it, the thing, the way I was, this is me being half, the glass is always half full. And so it's like, if you pay attention to this, it becomes an advantage for you, you know? In life or death situations, uh, it's like, do you want to be the one who's at risk or do you be the one who's got the advantage? Uh, I used to do this with, the, you know, Olympic athletes. Milliseconds make a difference between silver and gold, you know? Do you want the advantage or are you just going to let the silver be okay? You know, and it doesn't matter who you are in sales or other athletic stuff or just in life. It's kind of like if you have this information, you're the one who gets to apply it to make it an advantage as opposed to everyone else who's ignoring it because they think they got it covered and they're actually paying a price for it. Whether they know it or not, they're paying a price. 
Yeah, and it's, it's uh, you know, quantifying the price is definitely something that I think can be helpful on the educational realm. But I think like you're saying, the science is so convincing that, uh, and that's been done, again, this isn't a couple of years, this is, you know, almost 100 years of research that's been done. We, we know how it affects the brain, we know how it affects all the fundamental processes that would lead to something like productivity and how well you're able to do your job and, you know, how good of a friend you are and all of those quality of life measures that would matter too. And it's interesting to hear you say that, if we don't see the outcomes, you're so confident in the existing science that the the measure is not right. That's right. Like, and for a scientist to say that is, I just want to point out, I think is a really, really bold claim that you're saying, no, the, the theoretical causal data we already have is so strong that if we don't see the outcome to uh, what we're measuring, it's that the, the measurement is faulty. Jeff, if I don't let you breathe and you don't die... There's something wrong with our measure. You know, it's kind of like, that's exactly right. So you got it. It's, 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 it's totally wild. So the last question that I want to ask that I try and get to everyone on the show is, and I think we actually have a couple things that are pretty applicable that people can try, but, you know, your career is, uh, like you said, six different careers. If you had any one of those, it would be remarkable. Uh, but you have six somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, um, that's unbelievably remarkable. And um, one of the things that, that has inspired me is, your ability to consistently push yourself. You know, you get to the top of one field as an academic. Okay, now I'm going to do it in industry. I'm going to get to the top of that field. Okay, now I'm going to do it in, in, in government. And now I want to go and figure out how I can help more people. I mean, it's just pretty amazing to see uh, and definitely an inspiration for me. Is there one thing that you've done, and this could be earlier in your career, maybe something new you've learned, um, that has had an impact on, on how you perform, you know, at work and at home? And it could be something simple, could be something more complex. Could be sleep, doesn't have to be sleep. So I'm like walk the walk. So it's two things, but they're related, and it is sleep. And it starts with get the sleep you need every night. And if you can't get it, naps are great. So it's like those two things to me, doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing, etc. But again, it's fundamental and foundational. You get good sleep, it's going to totally change your ability to perform during the day. And guess what? Life doesn't always allow you to get the sleep you need. Then if you know how to use a nap strategically, that can offset that and help you keep performance, safety, your health, your mood, you know, at a good level. So it's like making that the priority. And it starts with a good sleep at night. You're great during the day. Wasn't good. Think about the nap. And, and believe it or not, and I'm not just saying that because this is what I do, but it's kind of like I have lived that pretty much for decades. And uh, your track record goes to show that it, it you know, pays off. But th- those, those are some great lessons and takeaways. And thanks for, for coming on and, and being with me on the show. My pleasure. Like I say, any opportunity to talk about sleep, I thank you for that. To learn more about how we work with sales organizations to drive measurable improvements in revenue, productivity, and well-being, head over to our website at risescience.com. Now, if you're an individual interested in using sleep to get more out of your day, just have more energy, and all of the other good things that Ron and I talked about, you can download our app, Rise, on any app store, iOS, or Android. You can also email me at jeff at risescience.com to discuss anything you heard on the show today or to nominate a great guest. We'd love to hear from you. The Rise Science Podcast is produced by Candace Kahn and Lola Feiger. Music in today's episode is by Blue Dot Sessions, and thanks to the entire Rise Science team for their help with writing and research. I'm Jeff Kahn. I'll talk to you next time. Sleep well.